Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I love looking at this through the lens of neuroscience mm -hmm. and just some really, really interesting things happen to our brains, you know, when we're out in nature and, and surfing, I think, is just kind of an extreme example of it. But we are absolutely pulled into the present moment. Um, I mean, I'm not a surfer, but I am a skier. I do some other, you know, kind of extreme sports. And you have to pay attention. You know, you have to be fully, fully in it, right? And so much of our daily lives, we don't live in that space. We live in a very different space where our frontal cortex, you know, is kind of ruling the day, where we are constantly um, responding to things like emails. We're making decisions that are very cognitive. Um, we're checking off our to-do lists. Um, you know, we're sort of using our critical neocortex, which is really like the last evolved parts of our brain. But when we go outside and we're on a wave or we're walking through a forest, our, our older limbic and sensory brains really activate, you know, and they kick in and they start to sort of override our cognitive brain. So it actually gives our cognitive brains a rest so that I bet when you go to work after surfing, you feel sharper and fresher. Am I right? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, our, you know, our, our thinking brains are, are, are like a muscle and they, they need a break. You know, our prefrontal cortex is just working so hard all day long, all day long, all day long in modern life. And it, it wasn't really meant to do that. We didn't evolve in an environment, you know, where we were just constantly thinking. We evolved in an environment where we had to assess the natural landscape around us. You know, we had to pay attention. We had to know what it meant when the birds were singing or calling in a certain way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Florence, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You bet. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work when I was doing research for my most recent book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And I was looking for material about the role that nature had uh, on our creativity. And my co-collaborator, Robin, actually recommended your book, The Nature Fix. And it was one of those books where suddenly my, my experience of surfing made a hell of a lot more sense than it had before. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did what they did end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, my mom was a psychotherapist and a single mom, uh, and I grew up in Manhattan with her. Uh, and my dad was a social scientist, uh, specifically a sociologist and a dem demographer. And so I feel like my dad had this kind of macro perspective on trends in society, and my mother had this very deep interpersonal and personal 
lens and and journalism, I feel like kind of spans both of those because I go in and I go out in scope whenever I write a piece. Mm -hmm. So your mom being a therapist, I've asked people who have had parents who are exposed to sort of personal development or or spiritual teaching rigor on, on in their life. I'm always under the assumption that they end up being raised perfectly with no you know, damage. <laughs> Parents are therapists. But, uh, what, are, what are the things that you did learn that were useful? How has your understanding of the kinds of things that your mom would teach you about these this kind of material changed with age? Well, first of all, I have to say you probably never dated the child of a shrink. (laughs) (laughs) Or you you might have a very, right? I mean, they're famously, I think, sort of confused people. (laughs) Um, No, it was great. I mean, my mother was very keenly perceptive. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it was it's an amazing skill to have. I mean, she would meet my teachers in school and say, "Oh, you know, I think uh, your teacher is you know this or that," and and you know it, it would be this totally different perspective on my teacher and you know his or her kind of sexual inner life that my mother would have this special <laughs> beat on. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, no, it was interesting, and I I think she was also just an innately curious person. Uh, which I think you have to be to kind of, you know, sit in a room all day and listen to other people's problems. Mm-hmm. You have to be deeply compassionate. You have to be deeply empathetic. And you have to be really curious about what makes people tick. Yeah. And I think she really embodied all of those qualities. Um, and, you know, I think some of them um, trickled down. Yeah. What, uh, what, what did trickle down? Uh, what are the things that you learned about communication, human behavior, uh, relationships from your mother? And... Out of those things that trickled down, how did your understanding of the things that trickled down evolve with age? Because I'd imagine mm-hmm. that somebody reading a personal development book when they're 12 or 13 uh, would be very different than the way I feel reading that same book when I'm 40 years old. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I think that one thing my mom seemed to really uh, embody was this kind of idea of... Um, you know, just relaxing, <laughs> you know, like if not, not to take yourself too seriously, not to, um, uh, you know, stress too much. She, I mean, she was very affectionate. She was a very warm mother, but in her parenting and in her parenting style, she was really quite laid back. Um, she gave me kind of a long leash, I would say. Mm-hmm. She was a permissive parent. And I think that that's a great lesson. So I'm a parent now. I have two teenagers. And I, I often think back to sort of, um, you know, just how chill my mother was. I mean, she was not a helicopter mom at all. And and that is really kind of the, the dominant cultural norm now, I think, among professional parents is, you know, we just feel like we're supposed to micromanage um, all of our children's, you know, every move. And everything they do, and and I'm 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 grateful to her for being so laid back in a way about that. And, and mm-hmm. you'd think for being a professional, you know, who's who's who cares about psychology and who cares about interpersonal relations, um, that she would have a more sort of systematic, you know, or rigorous approach to how people interact with each other. But but really, I think she just felt like things work themselves out and problems, you know, resolve. And if you know, if, if we care about each other and provide this foundation of love and a foundation of, um, you know, sort of self-confidence in our children, you know, they can thrive without a lot of hovering. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you're a parent of two teenagers. Um, you're a journalist, you're an author, which means, uh, in my mind, you've built a, a creative career. And I wonder, one, how has that impacted the kind of ad- kinds of advice that you're giving your teenagers about careers? Uh, and also, 
how has the experience of your life and your career made you think about the education of your children? Mm. You know, I think at this point, my, my kids are 15 and 17, and I, I try not to give them a lot of advice about careers. I think that, you know, they live in Washington, D.C. Um, they actually go to, to pretty high-pressured schools here. It's a very competitive, you know, academic environment. A lot of a lot of anxiety already among these kids. You know how to get into the right college, which colleges to get into. They're stressed out. These kids are really stressed out. More more stressed out than I think you know we were in my generation. So you know I don't I want to add to that. <laughs> I don't want to tell them they need to figure it out now or really even need to start thinking about it now. I just what I want to instill in them is a love of learning. I want to instill a sense of curiosity. I want to instill a sense of adventure. Um, And again, like my mother did, a little bit of a sense of self-reliance and independence. Uh, And I I think, you know, the nature, you know, sort of the nature psychology work that I've written so much about really plays into that also. It's like, it's good for you to have some free play, some free exploration, not be looking for an outcome, not be looking for a way to build your resume, but, but really be looking to build these core emotional strengths that, that we all need and that so many kids, frankly, are just not getting today. Yeah. Why do you think that is not more prevalent in our education system, given that it's so critical for our development? That is a great question. And it's one that frustrates me no end as a parent. Uh, you know, I, I guess I would have to say that, that you know, teachers are teaching to the test, right? That's what they are measured on. We we tend to we tend to work on what's measurable, and, and the metrics right now are are in test scores. Um, they're in meeting certain curriculum standards. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of room for sort of you know off label teaching. Unfortunately, I I really wish there were. Mm-hmm. So walk me through uh, the journey that has led you to this point and the trajectory of your career, um, some of the inflection points, early choices. How did you get to this point? Well, I was always interested in being a writer. I mean, ever since the age of nine, I knew that I wanted to write. And and at that point, I thought it, it would be fiction because I was mostly reading novels, <laughs> you know, and I was trying to stumble through Jane Eyre, you know, and Jane Austen, even from an early age. I wasn't reading a lot of nonfiction. Today, I think there's so many better nonfiction options for kids, but in those days, it tended to be fiction. Um, and... Uh, and then in high school, I, I did start writing for the school paper. I became the editor of the school paper. In college, I started writing for the campus magazine, um, also a little bit uh, at the campus newspaper. And, and that was at Yale, which really had wonderful student publications um, and a lot of a lot of really smart kids who kind of wanted to be writers. So there was sort of a fun, you know, peer environment there. Um, and then. Uh, I was also, I was an English major in college, but I was also, I, I took a lot of environmental studies classes. Um, I knew that was something I was really interested in. And so, in fact, a lot of the articles that I was writing for the student magazine were environmental stories. You know, they were about the landfill. Um, they were about air pollution. They were about, um, you know, garbage and recycling um, energy efficiency. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, from there, it, it really led to this fairly, you know, cr- fairly clear path um, in which I got hired by an environmental newspaper in Colorado um, called High Country News. So I went from New Haven, Connecticut to this rural small town in Colorado called Paonia, which was a coal mining town uh, and also very um, 
agricultural fruit growing region. So totally different, you know, from the East Coast environment in which I grew up. But it was a wonderful experience because they covered 10 states in the Rocky Mountain West. And I was one of two staff reporters. So it, it was really getting thrown into the fire. I was given the company car uh, and, and, you know, told to roam around and, and do some reporting. It was really, it was really fun. But eventually I was, I felt, I found myself writing a lot of very um, kind of predictable environmental stories in which there were sort of good guys and bad guys and resource, the resource extraction industry, you know, trying to clear cut forests or, or terrible pollution stories. I was writing a lot about the Clean Air Act. And, and at some point I just felt like, where's the human element here? You know, I, I wanted to write more about people and I wanted to write stories that had more voice in them and sort of more, you know, kind of humanity. Um, so I actually went and got uh, an MFA, Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of Montana, where I studied under William Kittredge, who was doing a lot of memoir and personal essay. So again, it was nonfiction, but it was really creative nonfiction in a way that that was so fun for me because it merged my interest in fiction and in fiction techniques with still writing about important, relevant, you know, kind of, um, you know, socially significant stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that sort of inkling of I've known I'd wanted to be a writer since I was nine years old. Why do you think that some people figure that out so early and it manifests it the way that they want it to? And why do you think that people overlook that or miss it? I don't know why some people figure it out, but I think a lot of creative people do. I think a lot of creative people know that they like to make things and they um, yearn to do it. They're drawn to it early on. Um, And I think others, you know, really cultivate it and develop it later. Uh, I, I guess I did grow up in a family where, you know, we were sort of encouraged to follow our curiosities. Um, and I think that was a great blessing. I, I certainly read all the time. You know, I think now about kids who are really creative and I think literature is really going to suffer because they don't read anymore. You know, they're drawn to other creative industries uh, like, you know, film or television, which is great. But I, but I do think, you know, the great American novel is definitely going to suffer. Well, I think that that actually sets up my next question so perfectly. I mean, I think that you and I share uh, the fact that, uh, you know, much of our interest in writing, yours probably more than mine, predates the internet because I didn't really start writing until it was possible to share my ideas online, at least not consistently. And I wonder about lessons in craft and uh, commitment to a craft that you picked up along the way uh, from working on a newspaper, working uh, on a campus newspaper, campus magazine, and even in a a small town uh, newspaper? Well, I always had great mentors and I always had deadlines. (laughs) So in terms of commitment to craft, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, getting you to put your butt in the chair than having a deadline. And also, you know, mentors and peer groups that you're, you know, trying to impress. Um, You know, there's pressure to sort of excel. Uh, and I've always, and I think a lot of, I, I do think a lot of creative people also kind of thrive on a little bit of friendly competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think I'm lucky for that. And I, I think I just, you know, was was lucky to also find find peers who really cared about what they were doing and took it very, very seriously. Uh, and, and, and that's that's a beautiful thing. 
Hey, it's Srini. I want to tell you about a really cool new app that I recently discovered that I think you'll find really valuable and really like. It's called Reason8.ai, and it's a note-taking app for meetings. If you have in-person meetings, you'll dig this app because it records your entire meeting, gives you a full transcript, and it gives you a summary and action items. So that way you can be more present during your meetings and you don't have to sit around taking notes. It's something that we use in every one of our meetings now, and it's been invaluable to our meetings to be able to go back and review them. Not only does it give you the transcript, a summary, and action items, it also gives you a full recording of the meeting so you can go back and you can play it if you want to check it out. So visit reason8.ai and download the app today. Again, that's reason8.ai. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, when you are writing uh, for a newspaper in a place like a coal mining town, uh, what is creating media in an environment like that? How is creating media in an environment like that uh, different from the media that most of us get exposed to on a regular basis nowadays from you know, places like CNN or, or, or the Washington Post? Like, what are the things that matter in those environments? Uh, basically, I guess, how has this kind of storytelling changed over time uh, with your experiences that you've had? Well, I'm, I'm actually really delighted that High Country News is still going strong uh, after, you know, I was there over two decades ago, uh, as you mentioned, before the internet. And really, and now... Um, the, pe- the people who are drawn to High Country News, the people who write there and are reporting from there are still the same sort of person. I mean, they're, they still care about the word. They still care about community. Um, I think because, you know, it, the paper is rooted in this small town, um, you, you really have a sense of who your neighbors are and how you're sort of interconnected. You have some responsibility, I think, um, you know, to, to be fair in the kinds of stories you tell. And I, and I think today so many, so much storytelling, so much journalism and reporting is really about, you know, emphasizing the conflict, right? Highlighting the conflict, finding the conflict. Um, it's, it's so, um, disrespectful, you know, the discourse itself is, is allowed to be disrespectful. Um, but I think when you're living in a small town and you're writing about rural economies, you know, you can't help, but sort of, you know, understand who your neighbors are. Yeah. As a, a lifelong journalist, uh, and this is probably a subject that I've avoided, but I, I'm very curious, how do you feel when somebody like the president calls the press the enemy of the people? I feel deeply uh, angry. I feel wounded. I feel indignant. Um, I feel like it's incredibly irresponsible. I feel like it's dangerous to democracy. Uh, yeah, I take it really seriously. Do you think there's a way out of this? Uh, I, you know, I think that, I, I think that journalism will prevail. <laughs> you know, I think that, I think that there is an understanding, you know, maybe even more strongly than ever that, that, that it is an essential part of democracy. Um, you know, certainly people, a, a lot of people are, are looking to news sources like never before. Um, and of course other people are dismissing them and, and we're living in this really divided time. Um, but I, but I guess I just feel like, you know, its values will prevail. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and uh, start getting into why you're really here. Uh, <laughs> what, what prompted your, I mean, you kind of alluded to kind of where it started, but how did the whole idea of, of the nature fix and your decision to go to study this come about? Well, I think I almost need to start with my first book because uh, what I, what I've started writing about really in the last 10 or 12 years is this intersection of humans and the environment. 
you know, I, I mentioned that I really got to a place where I wanted to put people back into the equation and back into environmental storytelling. And so for me, that intersection really found itself in human health. So how does our health intersect with the planet's health? Um, you know, how, what is our responsibility to the planet? How is that reflected back in our cells and in our bodies? And so my first book um, was called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. And it was really a look at how industrial pollution uh, affects our breast health. So I was looking at breast cancer, which the rates of that have risen, you know, quite a lot since industrial chemicals sort of came online in the 1940s after World War II. Um, I was looking at um, the ingredients in my own breast milk after my daughter was born. I'd heard that there were industrial pollutants showing up in breast milk. Uh, I ended up testing my own breast milk. I sent it to a lab in Germany and I wrote that article for the New York Times magazine. Uh, and it was a first person story. It was like, here's what's in my breast milk. And guess what? It's in your breast milk too. And I ended up finding uh, pesticides and uh, flame retardants, which are put into furnishings and um, a lot of uh, plastics and computers. Um, I found jet fuel ingredients, you know, and, and a lot of these chemicals um, affect our hormonal systems. They interact with our hormone receptors. And it was a really, you know, complicated process because in college, I did not take classes like, you know, cell biology or, um, you know, cancer biology or endocrinology. And so I really had to go, I, I actually got a fellowship, University of Colorado. I, I audited all those classes. <laughs> I tried to learn what I could. I tried to learn how to read, you know, scientific journal articles. Uh, I became interested in science in a way that I hadn't been before. And so that book was really about, you know, how our world kind of hurts us, hurts our human health. And what was so fun about taking on this next book, The Nature Fix, is that it was really a way to look at how our environment can help our health. Uh, it had a much more, I think, um, positive, you know, kind of um, reassuring message <laughs> in, the way, in a way that the first book was a little bit scary, I think, for a lot of readers. And the second one, I think, is much more, um, it's much more certainly consumer friendly. It's, it's, um, it's more positive. And, and we need those messages right now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So let's get into to specifics, uh, you know, various elements of nature and, and the various things that you study. But I, I think out of my own personal curiosity and, and given my one sort of source that drives almost everything, uh, let's talk about water okay. uh, and why water has the impact that it does. Why do I? Why is surfing such a, a constant source of inspiration for somebody like me? And, and why does water have that impact? Well, Sri, let me ask you, I mean, do you feel like when you are compelled to go surfing, what is driving you to seek the water? Do you do it because you feel um, that you want an adrenaline rush, that you want a distraction, that you want a challenge, or that you want to find some connection or peace? I'm curious about what's driving driving you. So- it's interesting because it's a strange duality. It's a combination of the adrenaline rush, but the piece that comes from that same adre- adrenaline rush. Like I always tell people that the exercise is just a convenient fringe benefit uh, <laughs> of it. And, and I find the same thing, you know, when, when I'm on the mountain uh, snowboarding. But largely, I, I think what draws me to uh, th- what drew me to this in particular was that I don't think I ever truly understood what it meant to be fully present until I stood up on a wave for the first time. Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. I I love looking at this through the lens of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And just some really, really interesting things happen to our brains, you know, when we're out in nature. And, and surfing, I think, is just kind of an extreme example of it. But we are absolutely pulled into the present moment. Um, I mean, I'm not a surfer, but I am a skier. I do some other, you know, kind of extreme sports. You have to pay attention. You know, you have to be fully, fully in it, right? You, 
in so much of our daily lives, we don't live in that space. We live in a very different space where our frontal cortex, you know, is kind of ruling the day, where we are constantly um, responding to things like emails. We're making decisions that are very cognitive. Um, we're checking off our to-do lists. Um, you know, we're sort of using our critical neocortex, which is really like the last evolved parts of our brain. But when we go outside and we're on a wave or we're walking through a forest, our, our older limbic and sensory brains really activate, you know, and they kick in and they start to sort of override our cognitive brain. So it, it actually gives our cognitive brains a rest so that I bet when you go to work after surfing, you feel sharper and fresher. Am I right? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, our, you know, our, our thinking brains are, are, are like a muscle and they, they need a break. You know, our prefrontal cortex is just working so hard all day long, all day long, all day long in modern life. And it, it wasn't really meant to do that. We didn't evolve in an environment, you know, where we were just constantly thinking. We evolved in an environment where we had to assess the natural landscape around us. You know, we had to pay attention. We had to know what it meant when the birds were singing or calling in a certain way. Um, you know, if you think about it, forest creatures all know what's going on, right? They are paying attention to each other. There's this kind of, you know, interconnection where everyone is alert. Everyone knows what's going on. And, and humans are now the only mammals walking through the forest that are completely clueless. Like, we just have no idea what it means anymore, um, you know, when a bird is making a particular sound. Uh, we have the hardware to do that, but we have forgotten how to use it. And I think when we go back outside of nature, you know, we start to relearn it. And it's it's a slow process, but I, I feel like through writing this book, you know, I have kind of learned some tricks for how to gain some of that mindfulness. I mean, you get it when you're standing on a surfboard because you have to have it. But if you're in a slightly more, more relaxed environment, uh, I think we have to work a little harder to be really mindful in this space. But it's super critical. Yeah. Well, well, we'll talk about some of the things that people can actually do. You mentioned earlier that you like to look at this through the lens of neuroscience, which I really appreciate. What I wonder is, is from a, a sort of neuroscience perspective, why is it that uh, surfing, above all things, or, or for that matter, snowboarding, why is it that those tend to be sort of fertile ground for creativity and ideas? Because literally all of my ideas uh, I can potentially trace, trace back to surf sessions or, or days on the mountain. Hmm. And is it does it happen when you're actually riding a wave or more when you're sort of lolling about waiting for the wave, right? Where there's a little um, bit... I think it really happens ap while I'm riding. No, not at all. Right. Because uh, all I'm thinking about is riding. I think it just, Survival. you know, somehow it, it's like they just show... Ideas just show up yeah. uh, in the moments. Uh, like right after I, I drop off a wave, it's like, wait a minute, I'm stuck on this section of the book and I just got it. Well, people who study creativity really say that the best ideas arrive unbidden, right? So they happen maybe in the shower, while we're washing dishes, in a place where we feel a little bit calm, a little bit relaxed, uh, and in places where our default network, as opposed to kind of our attentional network, uh, you know, can really kick in. So, you know, I talked about our prefrontal cortex and when our, our sort of to-do brain that's checking off our to-do list is kicking in, um, there's just not a lot of creativity in that space. Like it's not, that's not our default network. It's not our daydreaming network. Um, it's not our sort of fertile spacing out network. Uh, and, and that's what really mm -hmm. tends to come online when we're not trying to think of particular thing. Uh, and, and nature is a great place for that to happen. But like I said, for a lot of people, it happens, you know, doing dishes. <laughs> not as, not as fun. 
Yeah. Well, let's do this. We talked about water briefly, uh, which is, is just for my personal curiosity. One of the things that I remember very distinctly from the book was uh, how much you wrote about uh, this idea of forest bathing or what the Japanese, and correct me if I, I've pronounced this wrong, I, I believe they call it Shinrin-yoku. Correct. Um, and I remember reading that thing. I want to go to one of these places <laughs> now. That sounds so cool. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of also you know, walk us through sort of the neuroscience of it? Why is that often uh, something that people prescribe when uh, people are dealing with health ailments? So Shinrin-yoku, it's kind of interesting. I mean, people think that it's this ancient Japanese practice or something. Um, and it's really not. It was actually uh, an idea popularized by the Japanese government in the early 1980s as a response to stress, um, specifically a response to stressed out workers in Tokyo. You know, mm-hmm. people in Tokyo, they they have the longest work hours of anyone in the world. Um, it's a very, very um, kind of unhealthy population in terms of cardiovascular health. I mean, people literally drop dead at their desks. And so the government started thinking, okay, what can we do to actually, you know, help relieve some of the stress? They started um, looking at forest bathing as one possible solution. And uh, research psychologists and sort of physical anthropologists, you know, started really researching this, um, started measuring um, what happens to people's nervous systems when they practice forest bathing. And, and I think, I feel like I should define it, you know, and describe it. Um, but but the way that that I've understood it is that it really means just kind of engaging all five of your senses when you're outside. So you in Japan now they have 48 um, designated trails that they call forest therapy trails. <laughs> and they're actually rangers uh, hanging out on these trails and they they guide groups of people and they guide them through these exercises that are really just very simple. But it's like take a deep breath, you know, smell the, the wonderful aromas of these cypress forests, um, smell the evergreens, feel the moss, you know, between your fingers or feel the bark, um, drink tea at the end of the ceremony, you know, made from products in the forest, um, listen to the birdsong and the babbling creek and look for even fractal patterns or other kinds of patterns. And so it's this series of exercises that are really um, engaged to um, pull you into the space make you mindful, um, not quite left, let you just, you know, space out and think about what's for dinner. Um, but, but really practicing, engaging the senses. And the remarkable thing about this practice and the studies is that the researchers have found that even just after 15 minutes of doing this, uh, their, their blood pressure was dropping 4%. Um, their stress hormones like cortisol were dropping 16%. Um, blood pressure was dropping um, self-reports of mood, you know, increased to be much more positive, feelings of frustration declined. So, so it's like this dramatic shortcut to the stress recovery in just 15 minutes of this practice. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, we've talked about, uh, water and, and surfing. You've talked about skiing, talked a little bit about forest bathing. How do people take this and actually implement it into their lives uh, if they don't happen to be uh, in close proximity to some of the things that we talked about? Like, how is this something that becomes much more a- applicable in our daily lives? Well, it's interesting. Um, forest bathing, Shinrin-yoku, has really taken off, even in this country. There, There is an association of forest therapy guides. Um, it's based in California. They certify guides. I think hundreds of guides have gotten certified, um, you know, in the last several years. 
So you could actually, you know, officially take a forest bathing hike, but I think also it's not so hard to do it on your own. Um, but again, I think that there are certain practices that we can use to, to place ourselves in the present moment. So, you know, I live in a city, I live in Washington, DC. When I, I, I moved here from Colorado and I, I first had a really bad attitude about it. I was like, oh, it's so loud. It's so grimy. You know, I hate it here. If it's not pristine alpine mountains, I don't, I don't consider it nature. You know, I was kind of a snob about it. I just wanted to sort of fly back to Colorado to get my nature fix. Um, but what I've learned through writing this book is that we really do need this connection to nature and we need the stress reduction. We need it every day. A lot of us, I need it every day. Uh, if I don't get it, I feel really kind of grumpy. I feel tired. You know, I know I'm existing in my prefrontal cortex all day long if I don't get outside. And, it, and that's exhausting for us, even subconsciously. So now I just make a really big effort when I am outside to say, oh, what birds are out today? You know, what am I hearing? And even though I don't even really know the names of a lot of those birds I hear, um, I just try to listen to their calls. Um, I try to see where they are. Uh, I, there's a great blue heron, you know, who hangs out on my sort of daily walk in a city park in Washington, D.C. I now look for the heron. Um, I try to pay attention to to the patterns in the trees and the patterns in the leaves and the clouds. I, I pay attention to the quality of light. And I have to say to myself, oh, what's the sky doing today? Because if I didn't, I would just look straight ahead and, you know, um, ruminate about whatever it is I'm ruminating about, which is not so helpful. It's really the pulling yourself out into the present. That's the secret. Yeah. One thing, uh, and I asked somebody who's a sleep expert about this very thing. We we're talking about walks and, and going into nature and then the importance of rest and the role that it plays in creativity. I think for, for many of us, probably not surprisingly, somebody who's listening to this might very well be doing exactly what I'm about to say is, I know this for a fact because I do it. Sometimes I'll go for a walk on the beach, but I'll take my phone and I will listen to uh, one of the latest episodes of the podcast to see what I, I decide about it or what I want to review. Does that actually defeat the, like, does that undo the benefits of what you're talking about or is it, is it uh, diminish them in any way? You know, it, the studies seem to suggest that it really does. I hate to say it. And I'm, I'm sure, you I'm know, people figure. who listen to your podcast are getting wonderfully, you know, educated and edified and stimulated yeah. in a lot of ways. But if you're after stress reduction, sort of emotional yeah. restoration, um, yeah, I mean, the studies really indicate that if you are listening to something or talking on the phone, you will undergo what they call, you know, inattentional blindness. So you will actually mm -hmm. miss some very obvious things, uh, you know, on the trail. Um, you won't see the great blue heron, you know, um, and you won't really um, be resting, you know, that cognitive part of your brain and, and you, and therefore you also won't be engaging the sensory parts of your brain that are the shortcut to feeling restored. So, you know, we have these, our brains are so primitive in a way. I mean, they really did evolve outside. They evolved to read natural landscapes, right? So our perceptual systems, like our visual cortex, it's designed to read natural landscapes. It's not designed to sort of, you know, walk across a traffic circle at an intersection in downtown Los Angeles. Like that is very mm -hmm. overwhelming to our perceptual systems and, and, and it exhausts us, you know, in ways that we don't even realize. And so 
there's something just comfort making and sort of happy making about being in a place that our deep, you know, perceptual systems understand. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny to hear you say this because I, I can't help but think about uh, a conversation I was having with a friend. We both studied abroad in Brazil together, and this predated uh, the iPhone. Uh, it, actually, the iPhone had just come out, but it wasn't at the point where smartphones were unanimous. Like not everybody had one. They were super expensive. And we always talk about the fact that that trip would have been really different if we had had smartphones in our hands because, I mean, we spent a lot of time in nature on beaches and I didn't find myself documenting every single moment uh, because I didn't have the option. And I, I think that it was richer for it. Yeah, exactly. And and there are studies also showing that y- your quality uh, of relationship, you know, with the friend you were traveling with might also be different. Yeah. Um, you know, so many, so many of us now just are looking down at our screens. Uh, and, and in fact, there's some really interesting studies looking at kids who go to different kinds of summer camps. Uh, and in five days, some kids go to sort of, you know, like a, a conventional or math, kind of math or science or art camp, you know, indoors where they still have access to their phones and their technologies. Other kids will go to a nature camp where they don't have access to it. And um, then they give these kids tests of reading emotions in people's faces, sort of a standard psychology test. So like you'll show kids um, just pictures of people's eyes. And you'll say, are these angry eyes? Are these sad eyes? Are these, you know, curious eyes? Are these scared eyes? And uh, it, th- those scores improve dramatically after time away from technology. So, so they actually people become more perceptive, and they they're better at just looking at each other's faces and reading them, reading emotional cues. And if you talk to college professors today, you know, who've taught for a long time, they'll say that mm-hmm. that that kids, the college students today are, are really not so perceptive with some of these social cues in the ways that they used to be. Yeah. I remember watching a documentary uh, called The Beginning of Life on, on Netflix. It was about child development. And you know, it's actually a really well done documentary and it, it opens up with all these really cute shots of babies. <laughs> so anybody, it's hard not to like it. But I think the thing that really struck me most was, uh, I think it was a Brazilian uh child development specialist who had talked about the fact that uh, one of the dangers of, of you know, iPad parenting, he said, is that mainly a lot of the the emotional reading skills you're talking about, the ability to read social cues, those are actually learned uh, at moments like sitting at the dinner table because they're taught unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And what's happening as a byproduct of people who are literally just staring you know, at their iPad is that they're not, those skills are suffering as a result. And also, I think if you think about the way toddlers learn, it's also through all of their senses, right? They're so tactile. Mm. They're putting everything in their mouths. <laughs> they're touching everything. They're feeling everything. And you have to wonder, you know, now they're looking at a, a two-dimensional screen. Um, you know, what sensory skills are they not, you know, developing? It's not not just reading facial expressions, but I think a lot of their sensory or tactile skills are also being lost. And of course, I think about this with school children too, who don't get to play outside, who have increasingly um, reduced recess times, don't get to run around. You know, they're, they're in a room with four walls. They're given a crayon and told what to do with that crayon. You know, no wonder so many kids are experiencing more symptoms of ADHD, more restlessness, more boredom. Um, you know, this just isn't the way the child brain was designed to learn. 
Yeah. So as somebody who studies this through the lens of neuroscience, particularly nature, uh, and, you know, we're talking a little bit about technology, what do you think the responsibility of uh, the people who make this technology, tech companies, uh, people like Facebook and Apple and, and people who make our devices, what is their responsibility in this from your perspective? Well, I love it that I think a lot of those makers of technology are now asking themselves those questions, uh, you know, in a way that yeah. they weren't three or five years ago. Um, I've heard that a lot of executives in Silicon Valley, you know, don't um, let their kids have devices. <laughs> they, you know, send them to Waldorf schools uh, where they actually have to go outside all day. So I think that is fascinating. It reminds me of, you know, the makers of um, junk food who don't let their kids eat the junk food. Um, <laughs> I mean, they've done such a good job of of making these products, you know, addicting and desirable mm. and dazzling. So I, th I think that there, you know, maybe is a responsibility to make them a, a little more boring, <laughs> especially for young kids. If there's any way to make them less like crack, you know, and more like something utilitarian, uh, you know, we, we might be a little better off for it for a while. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really, really interesting, uh, eye-opening and, and thought-provoking. Uh, one, I'm very glad I got exposed to your work as a byproduct of uh, working on my own book and uh, really enjoyed doing the research, getting to read yours. So uh, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm, wow. What an interesting question. Um, mm, I'm going to have to think about that. You know, I, I guess, I guess I'd love that. I still love this sense of exploration and I just feel like it's not something we cultivate anymore. We don't really allow ourselves the room to explore and our institutions don't allow us to explore. So I, th I think that if there's anything we can do, uh, you know, that, that helps us, you know, follow our gut, we should do it and we should try it. Well, I think that makes a really fitting uh, end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work and everything that you're up to? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I'm Florence Williams, and my website is easy to remember. It's florencewilliams.com. Uh, and on there, there's information about my new podcast, which is called The Three-Day Effect. Uh, that's uh, available through Audible. And it, it really takes one concept of the book, The Nature Fix. Uh, and, and that is the idea that three days outside can actually really change our brains and change our behavior um, and help us heal from, you know, some kind of significant life traumas and events. Uh, and also information about my books and my articles. Mm, awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.